Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. She once described herself as the perfect affirmative action baby. The child of Puerto Rican parents, she grew up in a public housing project in the South Bronx. Her mother was a nurse, and her father, a factory worker, died when she was nine. But she studied hard and got into Princeton, even though she reckoned her test scores weren't as good as most of her peers. If it had been based on those test scores alone, and her background hadn't been considered, she thought it was highly questionable she would have been accepted. She came top of her class, and Yale, and a storied law career followed. Then, in 2009, Sonia Sotomayor was nominated by President Barack Obama to sit on the Supreme Court. Justice Sotomayor believes that without race-conscious admissions, a poor Latina from the Bronx would not have made it to the highest court in the land. That idea will now be tested after her conservative colleagues ended affirmative action at America's colleges and universities. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, was the Supreme Court right to overturn affirmative action? The Supreme Court has ended the use of race-based affirmative action in college admissions. It's 45 years since the court gave its blessing to such practices. But given that it now has a six-justice conservative majority sceptical of using such racial criteria, the decision was no surprise. Was the court right to do this? And how different will higher education in America look now? Joining me to discuss affirmative action, the court's decision, what happens next at universities are Charlotte Howard in New York and Idris Kaloun in Washington, D.C. Before we start, guys, I wanted to read you an email from one of our listeners, John, who's in Australia. He wrote, we, myself, partner Anna and daughters, Lily and Anya, Lily's four and Anya is two, live on the south coast of New South Wales. As we're down under, checks is available to us first thing on Saturday morning. So when we get up, I put the kettle on and ask Google to play checks. I work all week and sometimes long hours. So come Saturday morning, Lily and Anya are chomping at the bit to spend some time with their dad. And the way they can distinguish Saturday mornings from other days of the week is checks. So when I put the podcast on, they run around the house shouting, in happiness, checks and balance, it's checks and balance. They wake up mum and tell her that checks and balance is on and it means it's daddy's day. 
they've taken to telling people that they love checks and balance because of what it represents in our house. Not saying they don't love the content. That was the best email we've had from our listeners for a while. So we particularly wanted to thank Lily and Anya in New South Wales for their enthusiasm. And I really commend John on his parenting style. Well, I used to think that this podcast only sparked joy from my mother. (laughs) So it's exciting to hear that she may not be the only one. I enjoyed the letter from a reader on our chat about portmanteaus, which was followed up with an email from him saying that he and his friends at university coined the word portmanteurs, which is the curse afflicting people who create a portmanteau out of every new constellation of words. I really enjoyed that one. Thank you. Right. On to affirmative action. Idris, you've been thinking about this subject for a while now, and you wrote our leader in the most recent edition. And when we were discussing this episode after the Supreme Court came out with its decision, you had a pretty clear idea about who you think we should talk to. So who are we going to hear from first? Yeah. So Jeffrey Stone is a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. And if you know anyone who's gone to law school, you probably know someone who's bought one of his books. Uh, He's a big-time author of constitutional law textbooks. And in addition to that, he's a big defender of affirmative action, so much so that he wrote a book last year with uh, Lee Bollinger, who was the president of Columbia, has the distinction of his name gracing one of the important Supreme Court cases about this issue back in the early 2000s. And I started by asking him why he supported affirmative action and thought it was constitutional. Affirmative action enables a degree of diversity in higher education that otherwise might not exist. And that diversity is very important for students to be exposed to and have to address people of very different backgrounds and experiences is an important part of education. When I went to law school, that was still pretty much the reality. There were two black students in my class in 1971 at the University of Chicago Law School out of 150 students. That meant we didn't have all that much interaction. We didn't get to hear their perspectives, their experiences, their understanding of law. And that was a huge disadvantage. The second reason, which was more central to the book that Bollinger and I wrote, is that affirmative action is necessary to do justice. That our society has, from its very beginning and before its very beginning, has engaged in serious discrimination against black people. And that has had a continuing effect. And if you look at the percentage of black people in this country who are now lawyers in major firms or judges or journalists or politicians, governors or senators or doctors, it is quite different than it was 50 years ago. And I believe a significant reason for that is they've been given the opportunity to have a better education at the college level than they otherwise would have. So William Julius Wilson has often made the point that affirmative action doesn't do as much for the median African-American person. It's something in the far right tail of of the income distribution among people who attend elite institutions. And there is a sort of representational value, right, in these fields that we're talking about, politics or law, et cetera. But all the same, the racial wealth gap remains as high as it was 50 years ago. And the idea that affirmative action at Harvard or UNC or the University of Chicago would make a difference to what the typical African-American experience is, is wrong. I think that they're addressing separate issues, maybe. And maybe you think there needs to be a separate kind of policy program for the person in the middle, and there needs to be a separate one for those who attend elite institutions. I mean, I think that that's largely a correct observation. 
You're not helping all the blacks throughout society at the same time. But the advantage of it is the more you have black Americans in important roles in society, the more they can benefit the lives of, of not well-off or not beneficiaries of affirmative action. So you have black doctors who are serving black communities to a much higher extent than was possible in the past, or black lawyers who are serving black citizens to a much higher extent than they would have in the past, and providing better service, professional service to them. And so those benefits do reach out to the rest of the society. It's not as dramatic, but there's no doubt that it has been a benefit. And then on diversity itself, you know, rather than use race as a proxy for diversity of ideas, why not have universities simply say that they want diversity of ideas and actually look for them directly? You know, a uh, number of conservatives are, you know, the number of conservatives are not terribly high in elite institutions. So could a university, could a university permissibly say, we want diversity of thought, and therefore we're going to include a separate kind of positive scheme for conservatives? Sure. I mean, that would be perfectly okay, unless the Supreme Court says it violates the First Amendment. But as a general matter, as someone who has spent his whole career in academia, I would think that's perfectly appropriate. And I have no doubt that institutions do that, that they do want to see a a more diverse ideological student body, and that they do feel they have too few conservatives, then they will take that into account in admission, no doubt about it. And where do you see college admissions now that, you know, race-based affirmative action is no longer permissible? What do you think will happen? I think the challenge is how do you preserve the values of diversity and of racial integration and of the benefits that black students uh, gain from an excellent education without taking race specifically into account? And that's going to be a real challenge. Now, one obvious way to do that, that people identify, is just take economic status into account. But the problem with that is because America is predominantly a white country, the majority of poor people are white, even though a much higher percentage of black people are poor. And therefore, if you simply look at money, you will achieve much less racial diversity than you otherwise would. The other question is if the reason you do that is to increase the representation of black students, then under existing constitutional law, that could well be unconstitutional because the Supreme Court has held that if a government agency adopts a policy that is not explicitly race-based, but that was intended to have race-based effects, that would make it unconstitutional. And if the reason all the schools that use affirmative action now go to this other policy, and everybody knows the reason they're doing it is to increase the number of black students, that could well be deemed by this court to be unconstitutional. Charlotte, we'll talk in a bit about the Supreme Court's opinion and why the court made the decision it did. But before we get there, I want to stick for a while on the kind of rights and wrongs of affirmative action. I think this is a question where reasonable people can disagree, right? I mean, I've changed my mind twice on this subject. Well, in the time I've been looking at it. What do you make of Jeffrey Stone's arguments in favor of affirmative action? That There are a few different ones he made, right? There's a justice argument that African-Americans in particular have been so wronged by American history that they are owed some compensation or, or reparations, though he didn't use those words, and an argument that it's beneficial for other students on campus to be part of a diverse group. And then the third argument he had, I think, was about the importance of having a successful black elite in America. What, what do you make of all of those? I think this gets to the heart of the 
challenge for a lot of people in thinking about affirmative action, which is I don't think anyone would really quibble, or at least I don't quibble, with any of those goals. And the question is whether this is the right tool. And so you see that reflected in polling on affirmative action, where people support the idea of a racially diverse campus. There's pretty consistent broad polling that majorities of Americans don't support race-based admissions policies. And so that's the trouble here. I think when you get into the legal justification for affirmative action, which was established 45 years ago, it reflects this. It's kind of weird, right, that the reason created for affirmative action, the legal justification for it, is about having campuses writ large benefit from diversity, which kind of makes it seem like it's for the benefit of white students. I know you've made this argument before, Idris, and that is a very weird legal underpinning for affirmative action. But the goals that he articulated, I think, are hard to dispute. It's a fascinating question, this, I think, because you have two goods clashing here, right? Diversity, which many slash most Americans think of now as being a good, and non-discrimination, which is a very important you know, value in America for good reasons. And so partly this question is how much discrimination are you willing to do to further the goal of, of diversity? And Idris, at The Economist, we've been a bit skeptical about race-based affirmative action in college admissions for a while. And you wrote a very good leader in this week's Economist outlining that argument and saying that affirmative action in college admissions had to go and that the court did the right thing here. So can you walk us through that argument, the kind of opposite of the Jeffrey Stone argument? Yeah. So I think that if you examine the text of the 14th Amendment, which promises equal protection under the laws, if you look at the language of the Civil Rights Act, which bars institutions that receive federal assistance from treating people differently on account of their race or skin color, it is harder to square affirmative action with those ideas. And the Supreme Court has always held that idea that racial classifications are subject to what's called strict scrutiny, which means that any laws that classify Americans based on race need to be, one, narrowly tailored, and two, meet a compelling governmental interest. Now, I think that affirmative action, even if you can see the compelling interests, was not narrowly tailored. Colleges at the same time, elite colleges were practicing legacy admissions that hugely advantaged white and wealthy students for which, you know, they were using this other system of race-based affirmative action to kind of demographically balance, in effect, their incoming classes. They're could have been a less extreme version that they used, uh, possibly one without race-based classifications, but they didn't even attempt it. And then I think if you move on to the compelling interests, like Charlotte just said, the original justification given in the Bakke decision in 1978, which we're going to talk about later, was diversity. You know, it's this construction on the basis of benefits for all students. I think that rationale treats uh, non-white students as kind of avatars for their race rather than individuals. And then the other argument, the reparational one, is not one that the Supreme Court has ever endorsed. But I think even there, and let's just set aside the case for Hispanic Americans or the case of Asian Americans who certainly suffered systemic discrimination in America, but there, there isn't a positive discrimination in their favor. Even in the case of, of African Americans and this kind of reparational argument, for one, the current students are not the ones who suffered the injustice of the Jim Crow era or slavery. They're possibly not even the descendants of those who did as well. So the tailoring is not quite as specific as, as we might hope as well. So I think that there are a lot of complications to this policy. And 
and what was the effect of it? I, there's certainly the representational gains. There's certainly the benefits for the particular students who benefit from it. But uh, I don't think that ultimately the gains made justified the violence to the principles of equality under the law and fairness. I think it is worth, though, dwelling on what happens when affirmative action goes away. And you see that in states that have banned affirmative action, and the result is really striking. We published an article by our colleagues Tamara Jilksbor and Mark Johnson that outlined this. There was a survey of, of selective universities in six states. And in the years after the bans were instituted, the bans on affirmative action were instituted, they enrolled roughly 20 percent fewer Black and Hispanic Americans than they would have otherwise. And so that's a really, really striking statistic. But I think part of why this discussion is so complex and arouses very strong feelings on either side of the aisle, and you saw this reflected in the decisions from both John Roberts, but also from the dissenting justices on the left— is that it touches on these questions that are fundamental to the identity of America itself. Is America a meritocratic society? Are colleges an engine of social mobility, or how can they be? And if you recognize that America is not colorblind, that race-based disparities do exist, which they clearly do, should you avoid policies that differentiate based on race? And you hear the justices touch on this. Sotomayor, in her dissent, she wrote very disdainfully of the decision cementing quote, a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle in an endemically segregated society. So there is the specific question of the tool, whether it was effective or whether it was constitutionally justified. And then there are all these broader questions swirling around it of how best American policymakers can seek to, should seek to, try to reduce those disparities as they clearly exist. I liked John Roberts's rejoinder to the argument that the Constitution is not colorblind, which is, he asked, well, then what colors are justified in, in getting advantages and who gets to decide that? And he says that, you know, the liberal justices aggregate to themselves the ability to choose that policies that benefit certain sets of races are constitutional and those that benefited, say, whites over blacks would be unconstitutional. And he argues that that is such a claim of judicial power that it ought not to to stand. And I think that's a compelling kind of point. You know, you read the language of, again, the the Constitution. Uh, obviously, America has never fully lived up to that, although it's gotten closer and closer to its aspirations. But the idea that programs that advantage certain races in certain directions are okay, but not others in other directions, is a gnarly kind of hole to go down. Yes, and ultimately, I think it's that inconsistency of principle that did for affirmative action. We'll go back to the first time the Supreme Court ruled on affirmative action in admissions in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already have one. It'll give you full access to all of our journalism. And it's because of our subscribers that we can do all the reporting and the writing and the podcasting that we do. So thank you to everyone who already subscribes. And thank you too if you're thinking about it. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. First case on today's calendar is number 76811, Regents of the University of California against Barkey. Alan Barkey wanted to be a doctor. 
a former Marine, in his 30s, he'd applied twice to the University of California Davis Medical School. He was rejected twice, even though he was a good candidate with good grades. Barquet thought this was because he was white and sued the school. In October 1977, his case was heard before the Supreme Court. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. UC Davis had changed its admission system in the late 1960s. Archibald Cox, arguing for the university, explained why. Until 1969, the applicants at Davis, as at most other medical schools, were chosen on the basis of scores on the medical aptitude test, their college grades, and other personal experiences and qualifications as revealed in the application. The process excluded virtually uh, almost all members of minority groups. Uh, There were no black students and no Chicanos in the class entering Davis in 1968. In response to the civil rights movement, many colleges had adjusted their admission systems to address the relative scarcity of black Americans and other minorities on campus. UC Davis admitted 84 of the 100 students in each class in the way it always had. The remaining 16 places were reserved exclusively for qualified minority students. The ultimate fact in this case, no matter how you turn it, is that Mr. Bakke was deprived of an opportunity to attend the school by reason of his race. Reynold H. Colvin argued for Alan Bakke. When he applied to UC Davis in both 1973 and 74, his grades and test scores were worse than the 84 students accepted on those metrics alone. But he was more qualified than the minority students who got the remaining 16 places. The question in front of the court was, did this violate Barquet's rights under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act? Mr Justice Powell will announce the judgment of the court. The following June, the court revealed its answer. Under this judgment, Bucky will be admitted to the medical school. The majority found in Alan Barquet's favour. Steve Maisie, the Economist's Supreme Court correspondent, explains why. Reserving 16 seats for members of certain minority races was an unconstitutional violation of equal protection. Uh, to be that rigid about having a minimum number of seats for particular races was found to be too rigid of a use of race for those five justices. That's a racial quota, and racial quotas are unconstitutional. Or that, that was their view. Alan Barquet would go to medical school. But this was not the case's lasting legacy. Five justices had found in his favour... But one of them, Justice Powell, shifted to join the others in agreeing with one of UC Davis's justifications for its admission system. In my view, the only state interest that fairly may be viewed as compelling on this record is the interest of a university in a diverse student body. Powell said that although a quota system was wrong, race could sometimes be considered in college applications if it encouraged diversity. The idea was that racial diversity is a positive element in one's education, no matter what your race is, that this is something which is compelling in the classroom 
and then ultimately, after graduation, in its first time weighing in on the issue, the Supreme Court gave its blessing to the consideration of race in college admissions. In its most recent decision, six justices disagreed. Steve Maisie again. Well, the majority opinion seems to regard Regents versus Bakke as the original sin of the court back in 1978, and. All of the decisions that have piled on top of it, from Grutter versus Bollinger to Fisher versus University of Texas, they have all been based on that misreading of the Constitution. Barke was a landmark decision. It established a legal terrain that lasted, despite challenges, for 45 years. Until last Thursday. So Idris, in Barke, the court found for the guy who wanted to go to medical school, but also sets up this idea that affirmative action could be okay if it's to further the goal of diversity on the college campus. And that is the basis on which affirmative action is then used by lots of selective colleges in America. Can you run us through the important cases that happened between Barke and the most recent one that's overturned affirmative action? Can you run us through the legal history there? Yeah, what's interesting is if you examine the 45 years of this debate, you see that there's been this cat and mouse game where elite universities come up with new policies and schemes to increase the racial diversity of their classes, which the courts are increasingly suspect of. So in the Bakke decision, the University of California Davis had an explicit quota of 16% of the class. They said that the quota was unconstitutional, but it did leave this window open under the mantle of diversity, which is the rationale that universities have leapt upon. You know, but the problem with the Bakke decision was that it was quite a fractured opinion. There was Justice Powell's opinion was thought to be the controlling one, but there were many opinions and it was unclear what the exact law of the land was. In that opinion, Powell also said that he heaped praise on Harvard's admission process, which was holistic. It didn't have an explicit quota, but it considered race in a way that was hard to pin down, but resulted in fairly demographically mixed class. And he said that that was the right way to do it, as long as one wasn't too explicit about what was going on you know, it might be okay. And then in 2003, there were two important cases, one Gratz v. Bollinger and another Grutter v. Bollinger, which ultimately confirmed Justice Powell's opinion, although by a clear majority of the court. And that found that giving points to people for being certain races was also violative of the Constitution, that it too much leaned into um, treating people as avatars of their race rather than individuals. And importantly, in those decisions, Sandra Day O'Connor, writing for the majority, said that she expected that affirmative action would only last for 25 more years. It was a temporary measure because of its contramanding of other principles that are important to the Constitution and to law. Then in the 2010s, there's this Fisher case challenging the constitutionality of some top 10th programs where the University of Texas admitted students in the top 10th of their high schools as a way of increasing racial diversity, which ultimately they could have chosen to overrule affirmative action, but did not at the time. And then this most recent case, students for fair admissions versus Harvard and versus UNC were filed on behalf of Asian Americans who said that they were being discriminated against relative to whites and a more conservative court this time around, basically, and I think Steve is right about this, although Roberts took pains to emphasize that he was adhering to precedent and the time limit set up in Gratz and Grutter, that he was basically overruling the entirety of this jurisprudence starting from Bakke. 
Yes, the idea that affirmative action was justified then, but time limited, ought to have been time limited, is is kind of interesting. I mean, in the Barclay case, we heard about a university campus that at the time was not diverse at all, right? And that was clearly considered to be a problem in the era of the Civil Rights Act or just after the Civil Rights Act. Now, American society, particularly Americans under the age of 20, so those who might be applying to college now or soon, that's such a diverse group that universities would have to be very actively discriminating against candidates on the basis of race to create a sort of mono-racial campus of the type that perhaps Sandra Day Connor and other justices were worried about when they found four affirmative action. So, Charlotte, there's an element here which is a story about demographic change in America. Yeah, Idris referred to Sandra Day O'Connor, who wrote the majority opinion in the 2003 uh, Gerda Bollinger case. And she warned that in 25 years, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest of diversity. And Roberts picked up on this in his decision. He objected to the lack of a sunset date for the policies at Harvard and UNC. And both, I think, optimistically refer to an endpoint of a closing of the gap in educational attainment by race. And the truth is that that gap still really remains. If you look at the data on this, the gaps between black and white students and Hispanic and white students for reading math are are pretty similar at the beginning of elementary school. But then over time, as you continue through secondary school, through high school, the gap between black and white students widens, while that between Hispanic and white students shrinks. This is not a problem that has gone away. There are wide disparities in attainment by race still. And so I think you hear that frustration in the dissents from the liberal justices, both that these problems remain and that the evidence suggests that doing away with affirmative action does have a substantive impact on the composition of different universities. I think the question now is if affirmative action was a flawed tool constitutionally, if it had flaws in achieving the aims that it set out to, what comes next? And yeah, you hear Texas as an example, the example that Idris gave of Texas of public universities having uh, admitting the top percent from certain schools as one step. But I don't know. I think this is going to have a really big impact, and I wonder what will come next. There have been different prescriptions that I think would make universities undoubtedly more progressive. Legacy-based admissions, you have already seen lawsuits filed in the wake of this decision against Harvard's policy for admitting the students of alumni, for giving preferential treatment to the students of alumni. I think that will go out the window. But there are all kinds of things that I just don't really know exactly how they'll play out. And I think universities are going to be wrestling with the practicalities of this. Idris, I suppose one answer to Charlotte's good question is that this is not primarily a problem for universities to solve, right? That to some extent, trying to create diverse campuses through affirmative action is acting at the wrong end of the funnel, that universities themselves were trying to correct for a sort of pipeline problem. And to get students from all kinds of backgrounds to the best universities in America, you really have to do a much better job earlier on in education. And that then gets you into a discussion of how to raise standards at American high schools. Now, I suppose the problem there is that that's a really hard thing to do, right? It's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to make happen in practice. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Affirmative action can't solve educational disparities because it's a post hoc treatment and therefore using secondary school disparities to justify it is a gets you in this sort of infinite loop unless you have a serious program of addressing those disparities, which by the way, are the things that are a lot more important to actual overall social mobility trends, to overall wealth disparities. You know, I think 0.2% of students attend Ivy League institutions, the kinds of places and the kinds of institutions that that actually use affirmative action to this extent is not going to be much bigger than that. The vast majority of colleges are non-selective. They are, you know, the CUNY and SUNY systems in New York are a lot more important to overall social mobility than Harvard. But I feel like our discussion of affirmative action often overshadows the, the kind of real problems that are going on in American schools. And that's schools, not Ivy League universities. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to look in some more detail at how the justices came to this big decision. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We're going to hear again now from Steve Maisie, our Supreme Court correspondent and our top guru on all things SCOTUS. As we said, the court's decision wasn't exactly a surprise, but Steve told me that there were a couple of things in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion that stood out to him. The first is what some are calling the essay loophole, where Roberts wrote that universities can still consider how applicants discuss their race in their essays as long as their discussion reflects on personal characteristics like courage or hard work, rather than just the fact of the racial identity. And the second note came in a footnote, as Roberts likes to do sometimes. In footnote four, Roberts carves out military schools, like the Naval Academy, like West Point, from the ruling, saying that those institutions and the consideration of race and and admissions for them pose other questions. So formally, today, those schools may still consider race. And although the ruling doesn't say this, it's just that tiny footnote, the reason seems to be, based in arguments presented in the briefs and at the oral argument by the federal government, that in the military, a racially diverse officer corps is a matter of national security. All three of the liberal justices were in dissent, which is no surprise. But what jumped out to you in the the minority opinion, in the dissent? Three things stood out to me, John. Uh, The first is who wrote. There were two dissenting opinions. Justice Sotomayor wrote one. Justice Jackson wrote one. Justice Kagan did not write, but she joined both of her colleagues' dissents. And I think there might be some message in Kagan leaving it to her two colleagues of color to explain why the decision, in their view, is a misinterpretation of the 14th Amendment and an illegitimate abandonment of 45 years of precedent. The second thing that stood out is how strident these dissents were. Neither one followed the norm of using the adverb respectfully. 
Both of them simply and sharply say, I dissent. And both Sotomayor and Jackson read their dissents from the bench, which happens fairly rarely. Oh, it's also worth pointing out that Justice Thomas, in a first for him in more than three decades, also read his concurrence from the bench. And third, there was an interesting personal note in Justice Sotomayor's dissent. She was discussing Justice Thomas's use of the so-called mismatch theory, which says that affirmative action has been bad for many people of color because it places them at schools where they end up flailing or even failing. Sotomayor draws attention to the elephant in the courtroom, which is that three of the nine justices profited from affirmative action in university and the race consciousness of President Biden, President Obama, and yes, President George H.W. Bush. Yet, Justices Jackson, Sotomayor, and Thomas all went on to achieve, and this is a nice bit of understatement from Sotomayor, quote, successful legal careers, unquote. (laughs) That is a nice piece of understatement. Okay, so overall, this term in the court was a bit more consensual than previous terms. You've written for us that actually the number of 6-3 decisions in which the six conservatives were pitted against the three liberals was down. But the term had a, a wild finish with big judgments on the Biden administration's plans to cancel student debt and also the affirmative action ruling and a few others. So how overall, if you look back at this term and try and compare it to recent ones, how, how do you feel things went overall? I do think it misses the forest for the trees to focus too heavily on the numbers. It's true, as you said, that there were fewer six to threes along ideological lines. There were a lot more opinions that were nine zero this year than last. You might be surprised to find out that Justice Jackson, maybe the most liberal justice on the court, was in the majority more than Justice Thomas, the most conservative one. And there were a few rulings in early June, which did come out on the liberal side, cases involving the Indian Child Welfare Act, the Independent State Legislature Theory, so-called, and the Voting Rights Act. But those liberal wins, I think, are really best seen as preventing further erosion of civil rights and rejecting, in some cases, untenable far-right positions, rather than progressives making gains. So I think they pale in comparison to the big wins on the conservative side that you mentioned, striking down debt relief, giving business owners the right to refuse to work with same-sex weddings if their work is deemed expressive, and of course, ending affirmative action. Charlotte, you were saying on last week's podcast that you enjoy nothing more than reading a Supreme Court opinion, and you've got a lot of them on affirmative action. If you take all the concurrences and dissents altogether, there are about 240 pages. So what in all of that did you find particularly striking? I guess I should have a caveat that I do also love to read draft environmental impact statements as well as proposed guidance from federal agencies. So it's a whole of... But I think that John Roberts is a beautiful writer. I found his logic on military academies to be really weird, and I'm wondering what you guys thought of it. The idea that there's a national security interest in allowing affirmative action for military academies because we need to have leaders in the military who are themselves diverse to better lead their ranks. 
why that logic would apply only to the military and not to the public sector or private sector or society as a whole seemed strange. What do you think, Idris? Um, well, I think that there's clearly a national security difference between military academies and, and the kinds of jobs that institutions like Harvard train people for. Um, that also, that exemption was carved out at the request of the U.S. government. So President Biden's solicitor general asked that military academies be treated separately. So, of course, Justice Jackson leapt on that footnote and said that, um, in fairly stark language, that uh, the court said that black students could benefit from affirmative action if they were destined for the bunker, but not if they were destined for the boardroom. Another exchange I enjoyed over the past week was not actually in the affirmative action case, but in the decision that struck down Biden's plan for student debt relief. And I think this gets to a broader tension within the 6-3 court and a broader tension between the court and the American public writ large, which is that Kagan, Elena Kagan, in her dissent, wrote that in every respect, the court to date exceeds its proper limited role in our nation's governance. And Roberts pushed back on that. He wrote, it has become a disturbing feature of some recent opinions to criticize the decisions with which they disagree as going on beyond the proper role of the judiciary. And so there you have this back and forth between the justices in their opinions, where they're not just disagreeing over the substance of the case, they're disagreeing over the court's power, which of course is always some element of a, of, of a court ruling, what is in the court's uh, authority to decide or not decide, but it has become much more explicit. And that's in part because of this broader legitimacy problem that the court faces. The popularity of the court plunged, approval of the court plunged in the wake of the Dobbs decision on abortion last year. You have a series of ethics scandals, in particular those concerning Clarence Thomas and Harlan Crow, which if our listeners haven't read about, just go look up the many lists compiling the various aspects of the relationship between Harlan Crow and, and Justice Thomas, the meat of which is the question of whether a conservative donor enriches the life of, of a Supreme Court justice who's appointed for life and of his wife, Ginny Thomas. But yeah, I think that there are some degree of these decisions that goes to really the heart of um, a question for the court, which is how does it establish itself as a legitimate third branch of government in an environment in which the legitimacy of its opinions are being called into question in a way we haven't seen in a very long time. I guess what we see now is more and more the justices themselves leaning into this idea that decisions that they disagree with spring not out of good-natured disagreements about constitutional law, but rather a misunderstanding of the legitimacy and and, and bound of, of the court. And I think you see that, I mean, we saw a bit of that in also Justice Thomas's dissent in a case a few weeks ago about that kept Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in. Roberts joined the liberals um, on that case, and, and Thomas argued that Justice Roberts had set the court on a continued its sort of wrong-headed voting rights jurisprudence. So, I mean, both both lead into it. I mean, one thing that struck me about the end of Sonny Sotomayor's dissent in the affirmative action case is how much it just reads like a campaign speech. So she, she writes, despite the court's unjustified exercise of power, the opinion today will serve only to highlight the court's own impotence in the face of an America whose cries for equality resound. As has been the case before in the history of American democracy, the arc of the moral universe will bend toward racial justice despite the court's efforts today to impede its progress. I mean, that's, I mean, that's very striking language. Uh, the court's own impotence, um, I, I think, is just kind of a, a remarkable thing to write. 
these questions aren't going away, right? So there is a case that will be taken up in the court's next term, Chevron versus NRDC. And I actually didn't mean to neatly allude to federal guidance in my response to John, but it's relevant here because this is really about whether a court should defer to a federal agency if that agency's interpretation of a statute is reasonable. It's really about whether the power to interpret the law rests with the courts or rests with the executive branch. This is so important because America's future is shaped not just by legislation, but in the thousands of pages of regulatory guidance that follow. And I had the pleasure of not just reading the entire Affordable Care Act when I was a healthcare correspondent, but also reading all the guidance that followed. It's so important to figuring out how these laws actually work. And so who has the power to interpret a given law? Is it a federal agency? Is it the court? Is something that seems kind of wonky, but really will have a big impact on where the balance of power sits. Yeah, Chevron's going to be really interesting. I think we'll devote a future episode to that. But just wrapping up on this term, I mean, I actually think that the court did pretty well this term. And let me just try and spell out why. One of the big concerns that's been hanging over American democracy for a while is that the court would endorse the mad independent state legislature theory, which would really rewrite the way American elections run. The court struck that down. That's a win for American democracy. And then I think if you look at some of the other ones, you know, the student debt ruling, it would have been a very expansive reading of presidential authority if the court had decided that, you know what, the president can just at a stroke just write off uh, a lot of student debt and college students don't have to pay that back. And I think Democrats who kind of worry about that ruling now maybe ought to think harder about whether they really want the court to endorse such an ample view of presidential power, given that there is a pretty good chance, I mean, non-trivial chance that Donald Trump is the next president. And then just the last point I'd make is, you know, for the Democrats, two of these policies that the court struck down, student debt and affirmative action in college admissions, are A, policies that the Democrats strongly support, and B, incredibly unpopular and really contribute to the Democratic Party's problems with working class voters in particular. So I sort of see the court not only as doing American democracy a favor in this term, but also in a strange way through these rulings by the conservative majority, kind of doing the Democratic Party a favor also. Anyway, we all find talking about the court very interesting and we will have more court-focused podcasts in the future. In the meantime, I have a quiz for you both. It was, of course, the 4th of July this week. Many congratulations to both of you. And I'm sorry about the awkwardness in the 1770s and 1780s. I'm going to test how familiar you both are with the signers of the Declaration of Independence. I'll read you five names and you need to tell me if they signed the Declaration or not. OK, the first one is Button Gwinnett. <laughs> oh, we just have to give a yes or no. I'm going to give a yes just because I hope that someone named Button Gwinnett signs the Declaration of Independence, but I have no idea. Uh, sure, why not? I feel like there's a Gwinnett County in Georgia, so I'm going to guess there there was, actually. Button Gwinnett did indeed sign the Declaration. He was a merchant from Georgia, so I think Idris is spot on there, who was killed in a duel less than a year later, um, dueling being an occupational hazard at the time if you were involved in politics. Name two... John Jay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. First Supreme Court justice, no? 
John Jay did not sign yeah. the Declaration of Independence. He was, as Idris said, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, but he didn't put his pen to the Declaration. Okay, third one, Richard Henry Lee. No idea. Seems made up. How about no? Richard Henry Lee did sign the Declaration mm-hmm. of Independence. He also introduced the resolution for declaring independence to the Second Continental Congress. So he was a big figure at the time. Okay, fourth one on my list, Elbridge Gerry. Uh, sure, hmm. yeah. He's the reason we have gerrymandering. In addition to lending his surname to a dreaded portmanteau, he would go on to be the fifth vice president of the USA, and he did indeed sign the declaration. Last one, George Washington. Yes? Or was he? Well, no, yeah, no, it no. It feels like a yes, not. but it'd no, be so interesting not. if he didn't. Why do you think he wouldn't? Because he was probably fighting a war or something. Because he wasn't yeah. there? He was probably not in Philadelphia huh. fighting the British. Interesting. I mean, it'd be, it'd be a, it would be a more interesting fact if he did not. So why don't we stick with no? Um, you're both right. Washington was with his troops in New York at the time, so right. he wasn't in Philadelphia to sign the declaration. I was going to say I lost track of the scores, but... Truth be told, I was never keeping track. I think just give Idris the win. I think you both did brilliantly. If I still had my hands on the New York mixing desk, I'd be giving you a drum roll and some applause and maybe some laughter and the strange birdsong noise, but but I don't. Anyway, you both did brilliantly in the quiz. Thanks, Idris. Thanks, John. And thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. As mentioned earlier, we really enjoy getting your emails. Thank you to Nicholas and Colin, who've been in touch to tell us they've started their reading for our summer book club. A reminder that The Age of Innocence, The Sound and the Fury, and An Invisible Man are the books we'll be discussing in an episode in August. Do read along and email us on podcasts at economist.com to let us know what you think of our picks. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now find every episode of Checks and Balance in one place on our shiny new homepage at economist.com slash checkspod. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance for you next week. Checks and Balance. 